0: Produced by WBUR and the Boston Globe. These are works of the civilization that are so important. To remove them is to remove a piece of our civilization.
1: They came in and they turned so I could see them. I could see that they had hats, coats, badges, and they looked like cops, so I buzzed them the rest of the way into the museum. I remember feeling like I needed to prepare myself for death if, that, if it ended up uh, coming to that.
2: If something is not right, it's almost as if it were two different heists because the MO is different. They're not similar, except that they happen the same night. The gates at the Isabella Gardner Museum will stay locked while authorities search for clues in the daring weekend heist.
0: Imagine all the mistakes you've ever made. Now imagine that just one of them, one lapse in judgment in one millisecond in time, hung over you for all of your days to come. Imagine being known above all else for that one thing you did that you can never undo. And now imagine that the going estimate for the cost of your mistake is upwards of $500 million. Rick Abbott, who was manning the watch desk in the Gardner Museum at 1.24 in the morning on March 18, 1990, doesn't have to imagine any of this. He's lived it.
1: I haven't hidden it from anybody close to me. I haven't hidden it... No, I've told the story a billion times over the past 22 years. At the same time, I'm not just advertising it normally, either. It's not like when I go to get a job, I'm like, oh, hey, I you opened the door on this right, job 22 right. years ago, and they got robbed by $500 yeah, million, dollars, right. so hire me. Right. You know what I mean?
0: Abbott has always maintained his innocence. And, he says, he's always been forthcoming about his decision to open the door the night of the robbery, even in his earliest exchanges with the first Boston FBI agent on the case.
1: And I said, well, what do you want to know? I won't tell you anything. And I immediately spilled my guts, because I didn't have anything to lose.
0: Rick Abbott has never been arrested for anything related to the Gardner heist. But he's also never escaped the suspicion of investigators who say that the men who robbed the museum had help from the inside, that they knew their way around it and knew the police weren't coming. Their implication is that Abbott is the reason why.
3: Those investigators have never publicly named Abbott as a suspect. They won't even name him as one of the security guards on duty that night. But Rick Abbott must be a suspect. Why else would he have to keep answering investigators' questions and testify before a grand jury?
0: So, in this episode, we're asking what if Rick Abbott didn't just make a mistake when he let the thieves into the Gardner Museum? What if buzzing them in was all part of a larger plan to rob it? What if Rick Abbott was the inside guy on the largest art heist in history?
3: From WBUR Boston and the Boston Globe, this is Last Seen. I'm Jack Rodolico.
0: I'm Kelly Horan. Episode 2, Inside Job.
3: Whenever something is stolen from a museum, the most likely culprit is an employee. According to data reviewed by the FBI, about 80% of museum robberies are inside jobs. So given that stat and the fact that this security guard opened the door and let the thieves walk right into the gardener, it makes sense that investigators would look hard at Rick Abbott. Our colleague from the Boston Globe, Steve Kirkchin, has been looking hard at Abbott, too. He's been reporting on the heist for more than 20 years for the Globe, and he's written a book about it, Master Thieves. It took Steve a while to find Abbott.
2: I was spent a whole day up in Brattleboro, Vermont, uh, trying to find Rick. I couldn't find him, couldn't find him, but I had been told he may be staying at a shack up in the hills. I went there, and around 9 o'clock at night, I find there is a, there's the top paper shack, and there's a car in the driveway. So I walk up and knock on the door, and uh, someone asks her, who is it? And I say, Steve Kirkson from the Boston Globe, trying to reach Rick Abbott to talk to him about the Gardner Museum. And oof, the door flies open, and out comes Rick. In
3: 2013, Steve and Rick Abbott sat down in an Indian restaurant over chicken Vindaloo and beer.
1: For some reason, you know, I seem to be the only person involved in this thing who doesn't give a fuck who did it. Really? I seem to be the only one who's not trying to figure it out. And that mainly comes down to, I'm glad to be alive. Do you have a feeling
2: of uh, shame as to what happened to this, that you feel personally responsible
1: for what happened to you? No. I mean, I feel bad about what happened. Well, Obviously, okay. okay. but um, no. <laughs> so,
0: who was Rick Abbott on March 18th, 1990? He had
2: long, flowing, curly hair. You know, didn't dress when he came to the museum as a as a night watchman or a guard. Uh, I think the night of the theft, he was wearing sort of tight red leotards and a, and a cowboy hat.
0: Abbott's get up the night of the robbery does bear mention, if only because Abbott himself knew how unsecurity guard-like he appeared to the cops who were really robbers.
1: Because I knew how it looked. I mean, I'm long-haired, right. big ass Stetson hat. I had my Berkeley College of Music tie-dye on. Right. And I had my Gardner Museum security shirt. Over that, it was right. unbuttoned. Right.
0: From the crime scene photos of Abbott when he was found in the basement, shackled and duct taped the morning of the heist. We see that he also wore white high tops, faded red corduroys, not, as Steve said, leotards, and a fanny pack. Not exactly a picture of authority. But, Steve says, Rick Abbott was an original.
2: He was outgoing in a creative way, uh, but this group, this, this place this, that they lived in, in Alston, Brighton, uh, became a hub of both rock and roll, too much beer, and too much drugs and they would hold rock-and-roll uh, sessions in the basement.
1: So it was a frat house before we moved in. There was already a bar in the basement when we moved in. Mm-hmm. We built a stage on the other side of the basement, and we were ready to rock. So you'd hold these, uh, what, uh, hoop nannies down in? At least once a month. Mm-hmm. Roughly, Yeah, $5 a head, usually two or three kegs. This one's
4: dedicated to Dave and Kathy.
0: Aveth and his housemates played in the jam band Ukaya. Mm-hmm. Aveth partied a lot, and one party in particular, one that he wrote about in a paper for a writing class 20 years after the robbery, really caught our attention. It was just two and a half months before the Gardner heist.
2: And they had started their New Year's Eve celebration at the house, typically with a lot of drugs, and they were doing mushrooms, and he describes the goo that was made up for him and his pals.
0: About that goo, Abbott and his pals boiled hallucinogenic mushrooms, reduced them to a blue goo, and drank it. Then, tripping, Abbott moved the party from his basement to the Gardner Museum.
2: This is ridiculous. And now Rick is on the job here for at least a year. And that he would open up the doors of this museum for a psychedelic party for him and his
0: uh, random friends is uh, incredible. So, tripping on mushroom goo, Rick Abbott, security guard, shows up with a handful of hallucinating friends for his night, protecting the museum.
2: Let me just read, and this is Rick's words. Uh, My best friend Ed showed up just before dawn with someone we didn't know a mousy kid who looked tweaked out on crystal meth.
0: Abbott writes that he and his buddies spent most of the night in the courtyard. For many who love the Gardner Museum, that courtyard is a kind of sacred space, so even just the idea that this happened has an air of sacrilege to it. There's all the antiquities representing female power that Isabella Stewart Gardner herself chose, Artemis, the eternally virginal goddess of the hunt, the pleasure-seeking menads, Medusa, keeping her deathly watch. And along an edge of the courtyard, a second-century Greek marble throne that Gardner herself, and it should be said only Gardner, sat in. Until Rick Abbott did that night. Here's Steve again, reading from Abbott's description of the party.
2: I picked up a cup of water from the guard desk. I was very thirsty. I went to chug it down and got a bitter burning taste. Gin went all over the place as I coughed and spit. The place was a mess.
3: So, isn't it possible, drunk and stoned, that Abbott said the wrong thing to the wrong person? Remember, the thieves seemed comfortable in corners of the museum the public did not access. The basement, the security office, a conservator's lab hidden behind a secret door. They knew to move Abbott away from the museum's only panic button, and they knew where to find the security tape that recorded their entry into the museum. Steve asked Abbott, isn't it possible that you accidentally gave someone, a stranger, inside knowledge of the security in the place?
1: It's possible. No, it seems like they had some kind of knowledge of what the security in the place was like. But mm-hmm. I don't know who they are, or how they gained that knowledge.
0: Yeah, yeah. $64 question.
1: Um, more than that. Yeah. $5 <laughs>
0: We're not talking about a museum that was just named for Isabella Stewart Gardner. This was a palace that she built, literally, from the ground up. All of it was born of her vision, her collecting, and her direction. In 1936, Morris Carter, the man Gardner chose to become the first director of her museum during the last years of her life, reflected on it as her living monument, A visitor, therefore, has
1: the feeling that he is making the acquaintance of an extraordinary personality, inconspicuously carved in a relief over the main entrance, appears Mrs.
2: Gardner's motto, Se mon plaisir. It is my
4: pleasure.
0: In her will, Isabella Stewart Gardner states that her collection and the museum that house it are, quote, for the education and enjoyment of the public forever. But for Gardner the museum also served a private purpose. It was her bid for immortality. She lost her only child, a son, when he was just shy of two years old. A tiny child sarcophagus in the courtyard offers a poignant reminder. And Gardner lost her husband not long before the pair planned to purchase the land on which the museum would be built. Death took her most beloved, but it would not touch her stone and stucco monument.
3: But thieves just might, and Gardner knew it. In 1911, the Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre in Paris. Gardner was alarmed. A headline in the New York Times not long after that heist reads, Mrs. Gardner's art museum under guard.
1: Mrs. John T. Gardner is taking no chances. She does not intend to have any member of the so-called international gang of high
3: art thieves despoil the Fenway Museum of
1: any of its priceless pictures.
3: The article reports that Rembrandt's Storm on the Sea and Vermeer's The Concert were under special guard. Gardner knew those two pictures required extra protection, so she handpicked her guards and gave them an order, shoot to kill.
0: So, nearly a century before the greatest art heist in history, Isabella Stewart Gardner herself foresaw the importance of dedicated security. Which leads us to wonder, What happened over the course of the 79 intervening years so that, come March 18, 1990, a 23-year-old music school dropout named Rick Abbott was the Gardner Museum's best line of defense? It's entirely possible that Rick Abbott is guilty only of being a really lousy security guard. But there's more you need to know. Twenty minutes before Abbott buzzed the thieves into the museum, the alarms readout tells us, he opened and closed the same door. Why would he have done that? Was he signaling the bad guys, investigators have wondered? Was he saying, hey, the coast is clear? Or was it, as Rick Abbott has always said it was, just something he did every night to make sure the door's alarm was working.
1: I don't recall when I did it, but it was something I did regularly to test the alarm. He
4: pop the door open, you know, and let it close. <laughs> I don't care what he says. There's no way.
0: John Paul Kroger trained the guards, including Rick Abbott, for the overnight shift at the Gardner Museum.
4: That right there is a huge risk. It makes no sense that you would allow yourself to, why in the world would you open that up? There's a camera outside that shows Palace Road. There's no reason in the world why you would ever open that door. Any door.
0: So if it could somehow be proved that Abbott opened and closed the outside door every time he worked the overnight, then his opening it the night of the heist looks a lot less suspicious. But how to prove it? Can we talk about Rick Abbott? We can. In 2010, Rob Fisher, the assistant U.S. attorney in charge of the Gardner investigation, had an idea. Show me the security tape from the night before the robbery, when Rick Abbott was also on duty. Show me that Abbott opened and closed the door that night, and I'll believe that he did it as a matter of course. And what did you see when you you watched the video from the night before?
4: It was not a guard checking to make sure the doors were secured and locked. It was somebody being let in after hours and being let in, you know, where the robbers went almost exactly 24 hours later.
0: So the surveillance footage from the night before the Gardner heist does show Rick Abbott opening the door, but he's opening it to let someone in. When the U.S. Attorney's Office released the surveillance video 25 years after the heist, they did so with a public appeal. Who is this man? It was the closest thing to a bombshell that we've had in the Gardner mystery. Was it a bad guy? Was it a dry run for the robbery? Are we finally going to solve this thing? Well, no, and no, and no. Do we know who came in the night before? Yes. Who is it?
2: <laughs> uh, it's a person we've identified, and we are absolutely certain um, uh, hadn't, that, that his entry was not connected to the heist in any way, shape, or form.
0: Anthony Amore won't ID the night before visitor, but three former security guards we interviewed confirmed his identity, as well as a source close to the investigation. The man in question was the Gardner Museum's deputy director of security. So it turns out Rick Abbott was just letting in his boss. But John Paul Kroger, who trained the guards for their third shift duties, says no one was to be let into the museum after hours, ever. Not your boss. Not even
4: cops. The protocol was very straightforward name and badge number, call and verify their identity, and then if, if there's a legitimate reason for them to be there, then only you let them in. Uh, Rick has made some statements that they were never trained on that. That's completely false.
0: Did anybody ever say, even if the Boston police come to the door in the middle of the night, don't let them in, get their badge number, call the local precinct? and if it's no,
1: a- that, No, no one ever said things like that to me.
0: The other guard on duty the night of the heist, the one we're only calling by his first name, Randy, says security at the Gardner Museum was lax.
1: I do remember uh, somebody ordered a pizza or some kind of food delivery and they just buzzed them right in when they came to the side door. And it looked like that kind of thing was done there all the time by night guards.
3: If Randy, as he says he did, witnessed a pizza delivery guy being buzzed into the museum in the middle of the night How tight could that security protocol have been? Certain people really did take their jobs seriously, and then others really did not. Cynthia D. just worked at the Gardner Museum as a security guard at the time of the heist. To hear her tell it, if there was a rule against late-night visitors, it wasn't followed, not even by the Gardner's then-director, Anne Hawley.
0: She had, you know, had dinner with people and brought them in after dinner, like at 10 o'clock at night or... Later, she would bring people in to the museum and go into the galleries.
3: Does that set a certain mindset for the guards who are guarding that? That the, I mean, the doors? I,
0: I, I would I would say so. Yes, sir. Um, I would say that that breaks that that mindset that breaks that chain of command. Do not let anyone in after five. Well, what is a guard? An underling. Supposed to then do.
3: So, why is this a big deal? Why can't the museum director come in at night to walk through the galleries with a trusted friend? Why can't the deputy security director come in and chat with a guard? Well, it's a very big deal, according to security experts. What if the director at the door is under duress with a gun to her head? What if there's a bad guy just beyond view of the security camera waiting for his chance to slip into the museum? That's why you never let anyone in after hours. The simpler the rule, the easier it is to follow. No one means no one. So if Abbot's own bosses broke the rule, is it fair to blame him for breaking it too? And does all this door-opening business say more about the state of security at the Gardner Museum than it does about Rick Abbott?
0: What was the security situation at the Gardner Museum in 1990? Lyle Grindle was director of security at the Gardner from 1981 until his retirement in 2004. And five years ago, Grindle told Steve Kirkton that conditions at the museum during those early years were, quote, prehistoric. I didn't have an office. I didn't have a phone.
2: I had an IBM typewriter, and my desk was a table outside the men's room in the basement outside the guard's room. It was very, very difficult to get a new mentality started.
0: In the 1980s, the Gardner Museum was cash-strapped and sleepy, with a board that so literally interpreted Isabella Stewart Gardner's will that it wasn't fundraising. They couldn't alter the collection in any way, after all. So they didn't need money for new acquisitions. But they did need money for lots of things.
2: I had to start someplace, and I started fire protection. Six battery-operated smoke detectors in the entire complex.
0: There were many priorities competing for limited funds. Rembrandt portraits had been stolen from the Worcester Art Museum and the Museum of Fine Arts Boston in the 1970s. Anne Hawley had those thefts in mind when she asked the board to look into the cost of insuring the gardener's collection. But a more urgent need at the time appeared to be climate control in a museum that was at the mercy of Boston's weather. When I first got there that summer, there was a cloud in the courtyard uh because there was so much humidity and so much condensation and that you could walk into the not the courtyard to the Spanish cloister and it would get to be 100 degrees on the third floor people would faint really elderly people would faint it was really bad so the museum installed an HVAC system and fire protection they didn't get around to ensuring the collection
5: things there were not too different than they were in many museums at the time Um, it takes a gardener-sized theft to scare the devil out of museums.
0: Steve Keller is a museum security expert. In the late 1980s, prompted in part by an FBI warning in 1981 that a pair of well-known thieves had been casing the gardener, the museum hired Keller to size up its security apparatus. Keller had one main recommendation. Layers. Build more layers between would-be bad guys in your collection.
5: In theory, and the way it works pretty much everywhere today, because we've written new standards based upon the Gardner theft, if I were to make a move towards you, I would be behind a bullet-resistant wall and a bulletproof glass.
0: They have it now, but the Gardner didn't have any of that back then. They had the watch desk and a single panic button for the entire museum.
5: The person who you let in through that door ultimately was just across a counter from you.
0: In other words, once the thieves walked in the door the night of the robbery, the museum was essentially theirs for the taking.
3: Coming up after the break, the mystery within the mystery of the Gardner Heist the one detail from the night of the robbery that most confounds investigators.
0: Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair.
4: Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig.
0: The thieves who robbed the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum tripped the motion detector alarms hundreds of times over the course of the 81 minutes they were in the museum. Every time they did so, a computer at the watch desk announced the intrusion via dot matrix printer. Someone is in the Dutch room. Investigate immediately. Those alarm readouts tell us that the thieves were very busy on the museum's second floor. In fact, the readouts tell us that the thieves were exclusively busy on that floor, stealing 12 pieces from two galleries, five Dutch paintings, and a Chinese coup from the Dutch room, and five Degas sketches and a bronze eagle finial from the short gallery. But a thirteenth piece was stolen that night, Edouard Manet's top-hatted café-goer with the beguiling brown-eyed gaze, the painting Chez Tortoni. That painting hung in the Blue Room, on the museum's first floor. But there weren't any alarms set off on the first floor. Security expert Steve Keller says that would have been just about impossible.
5: You would have to have gotten past a motion detector twice. The odds of getting past those motion detectors are in the millions to one.
0: Keller went to the museum shortly after the robbery to look into this for himself. First, he checked to see if the motion detectors in the blue room were broken. They weren't. Then he tried to trick them.
5: You know, the... Rescue blankets, the aluminum, shiny rescue blankets, uh, they protect your infrared heat from being sent out into the room. So I, I put a rescue blanket over me and tried to go past it and then was not able to. I put a regular blanket down so I wouldn't damage a table, and I crawled under the table across the braces on the table, and I couldn't defeat them, so neither could they.
0: So how did that Manet get out of that gallery if no alarms were tripped?
5: Uh, It just baffles me how that got out of there. Uh, That painting was removed from that room earlier than when the burglary occurred.
0: This is potentially damning, because the only footsteps recorded in the Blue Room the night of the robbery belonged to Rick Abbott. We know this— because on his rounds that night, he swiped the magnetic strip to verify that he'd
5: checked that room.
3: Are you 100% convinced that painting was stolen by a guard?
5: No, I'm not 100%. Uh, I'm just saying it's a, th- it's a theory. It's a theory. I, I don't know who else would have, would have taken it.
0: Were there two heists at the Gardner Museum that night? Whereas the thieves who pillaged the second-floor galleries left behind smashed glass and damaged frames, whoever stole Shea Tortoni removed it, frame and all, from the Blue Room. And then that thief did something surprising, and investigators think telling. He removed Shea Tortoni from its frame and placed the empty frame on the security director's chair. Steve Kirkton addressed how bad this all looks for Rick Abbott at that Indian restaurant back in 2013.
2: So you go to the Blue Room, you, you do your regular tour through the Blue Room, mm-hmm. and that's the last footstep they say is seen in the Blue Room.
1: Exactly. Yeah. They wanted to know how it would be possible for the thieves to get that painting out of that room. and I didn't know. And so they put forth the theory that, well, I perhaps took the mayonnaise on my round and stashed it somewhere. And you tell them what? That I absolutely did not.
2: But you have to acknowledge the suspiciousness.
1: Oh, yeah, I, I totally get it.
3: Quick recap. Rick Abbott opened and closed the door to Palace Road 20 minutes before the thieves got there. He let them in. He stepped away from the panic button. His footsteps alone were recorded in the Blue Room. Shea Tortoni's frame was left on the security director's chair, and Abbott had given his two-week notice right before the heist.
0: So why, in 28 and a half years, have investigators been unable to charge him with anything? Maybe it's because even if Rick Abbott could not have done things more suspiciously if he'd tried, suspicious behavior doesn't mean complicity. This guy who has lived what appears to be a modest existence, maybe he really did just make a mistake when he was 23.
3: The FBI still doesn't publicly connect Rick Abbott to the Manet stolen from the Blue Room. They still don't publicly connect him to anything. Is Rick Abbott a suspect in the greatest art heist in history? If he isn't, and if he's been living under a cloud of speculation all these years, shouldn't the FBI just say so?
0: And if he is a suspect, our question is, is that because the Boston FBI believes he's guilty, or because they don't have a better idea? We wanted to put this question directly to the Boston FBI, but they declined to speak with us.
3: Next time, we venture four miles from the Gardner Museum and a world away to a grimy little auto body shop that one investigator likened to a Grand Central Station for criminals. Did some of them rob the Gardner Museum?
2: It's going to go six ways.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And the only thing I'm going to say is, listen,
1: everybody's going to make one pack. There's no discussion about it or nothing. Anybody spends more money than they, than they show, they got to get clipped. So as long as everybody knows it, that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm.
0: To go behind the scenes with Last Scene, subscribe to our newsletter at globe.com slash last scene. And go to wbur.org slash last scene to read Steve's essay about Rick Abbott and watch a video where I look at art thieves' motives, including the 1911 theft of the Mona Lisa from the Louvre Museum in Paris.
3: Last Scene is a production of WBUR and the Boston Globe. Special thanks this week to Jack Lepiars. Our consulting producer is Stephen Kirkjan. Production and sound design by John Parati. Eve Zukoff is our production assistant. Additional production by Catherine Brewer. Our digital team is Amy Gorell, Tiffany Campbell, Daigo Fujiwara, Jesse Costa, and Elizabeth Gillis. We had help from the Boston Globe's Shelley Murphy, Brendan McCarthy, and John Tlumaki. Digital help from Heather Cyrus, Jason Tuohy, and Ryan Huddle. Editing by Jessica Alpert. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. I'm senior reporter Jack Rodolico.
0: And I'm senior producer and reporter Kelly Horan. Special thanks to artist Sophie Cal, who first used the title last seen at the Gardner Museum in 1991 and who granted us permission to use it. If you have a tip, theory, or thought, call our tip line at 617-929-7999. That's 617 929 7999 follow us on twitter facebook and instagram at last seen podcast all one word if you haven't already subscribe to our podcast and apple podcasts and leave us a review it helps people find the show
1: I was cuffed and Randy was cuffed and he just said, gentlemen, this is a robbery.
5: And I think I might have said no shit.